Well, good morning, everyone. If you go ahead and make your way back towards your seats. Um, I'm Dennis. So glad to be with you. We're continuing in our study through the Old Testament book of Exodus this morning. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 32. It's a story that many of us are likely familiar with, especially if we are, have grown up in the church. So I'm going to take a moment. We're going to read through chapter 32. It's a story of the golden calf, that moment where Aaron makes this decision to build this golden calf for the Israelite people, and they then begin to worship it. And as I was processing through this and really working through this, um, at least for me, um, I guess I'll start by saying, like, I needed this sermon. So my hope is that this morning it connects for you. That would be great. It was really meaningful for me to be able to process through this this week and think about this story a little bit differently. Because I don't think the answer for how we deal with idolatry is better religious performance. I don't think it's trying harder to be a better Christian. I think there's something about relationship with Jesus that pushes idols out of our heart. And that's what we're going to explore together this morning. So, beginning in Exodus 32, verse 1. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day, the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterward, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Then the Lord said to Moses, go down, because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Moses approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, his anger burned, and he threw down the tablets out of his hands, breaking them to pieces at the foot of the mountain. And he took the calf the people had made and burned it in the fire. Then he ground it to powder. He said to Aaron, What did these people do to you? that you led them into such great sin. Do not be angry, my Lord, Aaron answered. You know how prone these people are to evil. They said to me, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. So I told them, whoever has any gold jewelry, take it off. Then they gave me the gold and I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. 
The chapter begins with the Israelite people camped at the base of Mount Sinai. Moses has been on the mountain meeting with God for at least 40 days at this point. Moses can't send communication back to his people to let them know he's okay. And he's so far up the mountain that he's surrounded by a dark cloud and cannot be seen by the Israelites. As far as the Israelites know, Moses could be dead and never coming back. And because of that, it's understandable that the Israelites, in the absence of their leader, would feel vulnerable and insecure. But how they respond to these valid emotions is problematic. We're told that the Israelites gathered around Aaron. We might mistake the language here and think that this is a cordial gathering with a few of the Israelite people approaching Aaron and asking him to create an idol for them. But this is not a cordial gathering and this is not a polite request. The language in the original Hebrew indicates aggression. This was a large and angry group of people surrounding Aaron and threatening physical violence if he doesn't do what they want. And their request is this, make us gods who will go before us. It's almost an unthinkable request. In Exodus 13, after God has parted the Red Sea and rescued the Israelites from the advancing Egyptian army, we're told that God went ahead of the Israelites as a pillar of cloud during the day and a pillar of fire at night. The author of Exodus makes it clear that the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night never left its place in front of the people. It was always in front of the people as they were journeying through the wilderness. And the people knew that the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire were physical representations of God's tangible presence. So when the Israelites demand that Aaron create an idol for them, they're not naive. They know what they're asking for. They're asking Aaron in Moses' absence to help them replace God. And they're hoping their replacement will work for them the exact same way that God has worked for them. But the Israelites aren't just asking Aaron to create a replacement for God. They're also demanding that he help them break the first and second commandments. And they're demanding this after twice promising to God that they will only do what he instructs them to do. In Exodus 19, we read, the people all responded together, we will do everything the Lord has said. And then again in Exodus 24, when Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice, everything the Lord has said, we will do. So while the Israelites understandably feel insecure and vulnerable in Moses' absence, the way they choose to respond to these feelings is wildly disobedient. And yet in verse 2, Aaron tells the Israelites to give him their gold earrings. 
He says, take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. The gold earrings. Where do you think the Israelites got the gold earrings? They got them from the Egyptians. All the way back in Exodus 12, as the Israelites are leaving Egypt, they ask the Egyptian people for articles of silver and gold and for their clothing, and we're told that God made the Egyptian people favorably disposed to the Israelites, and so they gave to the Israelite people their articles of silver and gold and clothing. But what did God intend the gold to be used for? was meant to be used to construct the tabernacle. The gold was to be used to build the place where God's presence would dwell amongst his people. It was to be used in building a place where God's people would gather together to worship him. What the Israelites have done is taken something that God intended for his own worship and misused it to build an idol they thought could replace God. And then in verse 5, Aaron announces that there will be a festival. We're told when Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. The Israelite people again Take something that God intended for his own worship, something that God had initiated for his own worship, festivals and offerings, and they misuse it. They misuse these religious festivals and offerings to consecrate the idol. In essence, by setting the golden calf at the center of the festival and by sacrificing burnt offerings, they're trying to make the golden calf holy. But only God can create holy times, and only God can make holy places and initiate holy worship. The Israelites continue taking things that God intended for his own worship, and they misuse them to make the golden calf holy like God is holy. Lastly, in verse 19, Moses approaches the camp. He throws down the tablets that have the Ten Commandments inscribed on them, and they break into pieces. He takes the golden calf, and he burns it, and then grinds it into powder. And then Moses goes to Aaron and demands to know how all of this could happen. And the very last thing Aaron says to Moses, recorded in verse 24, is this. So I told them, whoever has any gold jewelry, take it off. Then they gave me the gold, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. And out came this calf. Now, anyone who has children, or has been around children, or even just adults, knows how reminiscent Aaron's words are to a someone, someone trying to explain how some object ended up broken on the floor. My dad used to joke that even though he had two kids, he actually had three kids. 
He used to joke that there was my brother T, me, Dennis, and then the mysterious third sibling, not me, that would show up whenever something bad would happen. But while there's something very human and very relatable in Aaron's attempt to explain the golden calf's existence, I think there's a hint of something else that we need to pay attention to in his words. Aaron never expected things to end up where they did. When he was first approached and threatened by the Israelite people to make the golden calf, when he asked them for their gold earrings, he never could have imagined it would end up with the Israelites declaring the golden calf to be their new God. He never could have imagined it would end up with the Israelites trying to make the golden calf holy like God is holy. He never could have imagined that they'd end up so far away from God. The Israelites' idolatry is rooted in a lack of relationship with God. It's an attempt to replace God with something they think they can make holy. And in the end, they end up further away from God than they ever could have imagined. If we take this story and lift it out of its larger context in the book of Exodus, we might be tempted to think that the Israelites demand that Aaron create an idol for them because their hearts are evil and bent on rebellion. And in one sense, that's true. The Israelites, like us, are broken. Throughout the book of Exodus, they grumble against God and Moses. They frequently become impatient and frustrated, and they do rebel against God. But I think if we read this story, we can recognize that something else is happening. I think the Israelites threaten Aaron and demand that he make them an idol because they don't know God. I think the Israelites demand a replacement for God because they don't have a relationship with God. All throughout the Israelites' history, it's been Moses hearing from God, talking with God, and meeting with God. God spoke to Moses at the burning bush, and God sends Moses on a mission to deliver his people from Pharaoh's unjust and oppressive rule in Egypt. The only evidence that the Israelites have that Moses has been sent by God are the supernatural works that Moses performs. At no point do the Israelites themselves interact with God. God parts the Red Sea, rescuing the Israelites from the advancing Egyptian army. God leads the Israelites through the desert by providing the pillar of fire and the pillar of smoke. He provides water from a rock, food that falls from the sky, and he defends them when the Amalekites attack. And at no point do the Israelites themselves interact with God? I mean, in Exodus 19, there's this story of God telling Moses 
that he wants to meet with the Israelites, that God wants to interact with them personally, directly, and relationally. Moses comes down the mountain from that meeting. He prepares the Israelite people. He consecrates them so that they can be in God's presence. But on the day they were supposed to meet God, they decided not to. It's in Exodus 20. When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain and smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. The people remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. Twice, the author of Exodus tells us, the people stayed at a distance. God invited them to draw near. Moses prepared them to come close, and they chose to remain at a distance. Yes, the Israelites are God's people, but they don't know God. They don't understand that even though Moses has been gone for at least 40 days, God still is caring for them. They don't understand that in Moses' absence, God is still protecting them, that God is still providing for them, that God is still in love with them. They don't understand because they don't know God, and so they do the only thing that makes sense to them. They build an idol in church. We do the exact same thing. We take things God has given to us, like financial resource, our sexuality, our families, our work, things that God intended for us to use to worship Him, and instead we create idols out of them, hoping they'll provide our heart's desires the way that only God can. Now, this is the part that feels like I should start talking about how we identify and root out the idols we've created. And I'll get to that. But I'm not interested in having that conversation. Not yet. Because I think there's something else we have to talk about first. Something that, quite honestly, might make the work of identifying and uprooting idols in our lives unnecessary. The Israelites built an idol because they didn't know God. They lacked relationship. I think we build idols because we don't know God. We build idols because we don't know that God is still at work providing our heart's deepest desires, significant safety, security, and fulfillment when we can't see tangible evidence of Him doing those things. We long for our heart's deepest desires to be met. And so when we don't see God doing anything to meet them, we create idols that we use to replace God in the hopes those idols will provide for us the things that only God can. And we forget that in and through and by Jesus, God has already made us significant, safe, secure, and fulfilled. The way we address our idolatry 
isn't better religious performance. It isn't more stringent forms of personal legalism. The way that so many of us have been taught, the way that I've been taught throughout my life to identify and uproot the idols in our lives, for some reason it always starts inside of us. The people who built the idols in the first place. We cannot locate the solution to our idolatry inside of ourselves. We cannot perform our way out of idolatry. The remedy for our idolatry is the gospel. The remedy is Jesus. Jesus does for us what Moses did for the Israelites. He comes down from heaven and does life with us. He reveals to us the ways our hearts and lives are misaligned with the kingdom. He shows us the idols we've built. And then in his perfect love for us, he takes our idols and burns them up and grinds them down into powder. The deeper our relationship with Jesus, the more expansive we know his love to be, and the more unshakable we know his promises to be. And as our knowledge of God's love for us and acceptance of us expands, there's less space in our hearts and minds for idols. So then if Jesus is the remedy to our idolatry, And if Jesus alone is capable of destroying the idols in our lives, what role, if any, do we have in this work? Well, I think the Israelites are instructive for us. When they were invited to draw near to God, they chose to remain at a distance. They didn't know God because they didn't want to be in his presence. They refused to get close to him, and they outsourced their relationship with God to Moses. I think the same is true for us. God is inviting each one of us every day deeper into his presence but we're content to remain at a distance. We're content to stay right where we are. We choose to keep a distance or find a safe space in God's presence and hunker down there because we're good. And we outsource portions of our relationship with God to others, like pastors or the people that we follow on Twitter or maybe even our parents. The way God's love expands in our hearts and lives and then pushes out the idols we've built is by us intentionally choosing to draw nearer and nearer to God. The work of uprooting idols starts with us choosing to be in God's presence more. So, Where do you go in your life where you feel God's presence most tangibly?
What activities do you engage in that place you in God's presence? For me, it's journaling. I sit with God and I journal. It's going for a walk in the park. It's when I sit in Julia's in my living room with our neighborhood group. What is it for you? What do you need to do to get into God's presence more? And once there, I think there are a few questions that we should ask God and work through with Him. Here are those questions. What fills our thoughts and imaginations when nothing else demands our attention? How do we spend our money? Where do we allocate our time? How do we respond when our prayers go unanswered and our hopes unfulfilled? And what are our most uncontrolled emotions? These questions tend to help us get at the idols we have created. Now, I do want to take a few moments and talk about one idol that, in my opinion, is undermining the church's public witness. And it's one of those topics that you're told not to like talk about in mixed company, right? If you've ever gathered with family, you've probably heard people say, man, when you're just sitting around the table, politics and religion are off the table. I'm gonna take about two minutes and dive into the politics thing for a particular reason. This week, I was sitting at the traffic light at Cedar and North, right in front of Allegheny General. And the car in front of me had three bumper stickers on it, from left to right. The first one was a Jesus fish. The second one was a sticker that read, God saves. And the third one was, F Joe Biden and F you for voting for him. Now, the sentiment isn't relegated to one side of the political aisle. There are plenty of people we know, maybe even some in this room, who have said very similar things about Donald Trump and the people who voted for him. Politics are necessary. We need to care about and be engaged in the political process at every level because the political realm has a very real impact on our neighbors' lives and our own. Our politicians and the policies they enact impact our neighbors and our own ability to thrive and flourish. But we have taken politics and turned them into something ultimate. We've made them into an idol believing that our significant safety, security, and fulfillment are all inextricably linked to our political politician getting elected or our favored political party being in power. And because we've turned politics into an idol, we've become numb to the way our political engagement has led 
us to dehumanize and demonize other people who are made in the image of God. We're taught that people on the other side of the aisle are our enemies that need to be conquered or vanquished. We're taught to fear and even hate immigrants, gun rights supporters, members of the LGBTQ community. Michael Ware um, is an author and former official in the Obama administration. He says this, a Christian's obligation is not to their tribe, but to their God. A God who cares deeply for all people. And if a Christian's political ideas and actions are not intended toward the good of their enemies, then their political witness is not Christian in its character. That last line. If a Christian's political ideas and actions are not intended toward the good of their enemies, then their political witness is not Christian in character. Church, we must reclaim this conviction in our political engagement. We engage politically to advance the common good and uphold the dignity of all people. When we place ourselves in God's presence, when we sit down and spend time knowing Jesus, hatred for people gets pushed out of our hearts. Politics, we know, has become an idol when we can either believe we're honoring God or that we're being uniquely obedient to him and still say things like F Joe Biden or Donald Trump and F you for voting for him. Politics has become an idol when it causes us to fear other people. Politics has become an idol when we believe our security is rooted in a particular politician or party winning an election. I think for many of us, as we look back across the past five years in particular, there's nothing that's damaged the church's public witness like the way that Christians have chosen to engage politics. It's the reason I wanted to talk about it together this morning. It matters. The way that our neighbors and neighborhoods and cities see us as we engage in this particular realm says a lot about the ways that we follow Jesus and whether or not Jesus is actually real. So, to wrap all of this up, our idolatry, like the Israelites, is based in a lack of relationship with God. We build idols and place our hope in them when we don't know God. And in the end, the idols we create lead us further away from God to a place where our sense of significance and safety and security and fulfillment are all rooted in things we've created. The way that we overcome idolatry is not through better religious performance, but Jesus. We address idolatry by knowing Jesus increasingly more deeply. And he does the work of revealing and destroying the idols we've built. We just need to place ourselves in his presence more frequently. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that we could process all of this together and try to make sense of 
the idols we have in our hearts, but also why we build them. And the way that your love pushes them out of our hearts. Father, would you make us more your people? Would you be at the center of our lives? Would we root ourselves in you more deeply? We love you and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.